Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia and streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are available via the 3CR and Freedom of Species websites. All podcasts are available via iTunes. Welcome to Freedom of Species. I'm Kate Gracie, and today I want to tell you primarily about the seal pups that are being slaughtered almost simultaneously with this show going to air. I also want to talk about a proposed seal cull in South Australia. But first things first, each year around 80,000 baby seals are separated from their lactating mothers and beaten to death on beaches in Namibia in southern Africa. Another 6,000 or so bull seals are shot in the head. Now, the seal pups are killed for their pelts, while the bulls are killed for their genitalia, which is marketed as an aphrodisiac in Asia. The killing season started on July the 1st this year and runs for about four months. What's more, the person responsible for much of this carnage is an Australian citizen. Pat Dickens is the founder of activist group The Seals of Nam, which is key in the campaign to put an end to this practice. He's also the South African representative for the International Anti-Fur Coalition. Nikki Berta is an independent civil society activist. She's also played an important role in the campaign. I spoke to each of them last week by Skype from South Africa. Now be warned, the audio quality of each is wildly different, but please bear with me as their message is really important and needs to be heard. As difficult as it is, I think we need to know what it actually entails. Can you possibly describe what actually happens during the slaughter? These animals are bludgeoned to death, specifically the pups. Now, Namibia is the only country in the world that allows for the killing of nursing seal pups. And the reason for this is while they still nurse, their fur is soft and black and luxurious. And the moment they stop nursing, the fur starts to mottle. So it loses a lot of that shine and, you know, the softness and as, you know, that blackness, it becomes sort of a grey, mousy, patchy, kind of harder fur. Um, so they round up these animals, they separate them from the, the, the herd, they round them up, and then seasonal workers, untrained seasonal workers with crude clubs, then just go in and it's basically whack-a-mole. It's like whack-a-mole, they beat these animals to death. If they, you know, their own regulations state that it should be a single blow to to the head that kills the animal, but that's definitely not the case. From the footage that we have seen, um, these animals, they they don't die from one blow. They are literally like, it's like a whack-a-mole. These un- untrained seasonal workers from an indigent community get paid a pittance to beat baby animals to death. People often ask me why is the Namibian seal hunt considered the cruelest seal hunt in the world. It's actually the cruelest slaughter of any animal species on, on Earth. Uh, if, if we look at the Canadian harp seal, it's restricted in its movement in that it uses its abdominal muscles to shuffle forward along the ice. When you run up and you're clubbing it, although it's, it's bloody cool, the chances of landing a single accurate blow enough to stun the animal uh, are quite good. But if you look at the, the Cape Fur seal, which is, is similar to the seal that you've got in Australia, you know, in Australia you've got the, the subspecies, um, Archocephalus pucillus, and you've also got the um, New Zealand seal. These animals can tuck their hind flippers underneath their, their body so that they can move around on all fours. They become extremely agile when they're on land. They can run almost as fast as a man, and they take evasive actions when they're being beaten. So a single blow is not enough to stun them, and they are repeatedly beaten again and again and again until they are rendered unconscious. And then also if we look at the harp seal, the Canadian harp seal 
breeds in isolated pockets which are scattered around the ice. Uh, when you're clubbing one, it doesn't tend to affect the entire colony. Um, by comparison, if we look at the Cape Fur Field, the natal breeding colonies are extremely densely populated. We're looking at up to 100,000 animals in a, single, in a single given colony. When the field clubbers arrive at the early hours of the morning, the, uh, a panic ensues and the animals uh, stampede towards the safety of the field. Uh, heavy bulls will crush uh, any young cubs that are in, in their way. I mean, a bull weighs 350 kilograms, whereas a young cub may weigh maybe 15 kilograms. Uh, so the bulls are just mowing these little animals down, they get squashed to death. Um, the, the young cubs get so petrified when they are witnessing the sheer brutality of their brothers and sisters being murdered in front of them. They, they actually regurgitate their mother's milk, they vomit up their mother's milk in fear. And it's been scientifically documented that pregnant females get so distraught that they will self-abort. Uh, now you've got to understand the, the absolute sheer terror of an animal in order for it to self-abort. Why does the Namibian slaughter take place? Is it to protect the local fishery resources or is it to sell the seal fur or is it for something else altogether? That's, that's one of the crazy things, you know, if, if we look at the, if the situation, the, the Namibian government claims that the Cape Fur seals are damaging fish stocks. Uh, this, we, we refute this completely, because if you look at the number of seal colonies, uh, there are roughly 26 seal colonies that are scattered out uh, from the southern point of Namibia to the northern border. The largest of these seal colonies is at uh, Cape Cross, and it's the second largest uh, seal colony uh, on Earth. It stretches out approximately two kilometers in length. Now, if you took all 26 seal colonies and placed them side by side next to each other, that would stretch out over 18 kilometers. Now, Namibia's got a coastline that's 1,572 kilometers in length, and it's got a commercial EE zone, an exclusive economic zone, that's 200 nautical miles, which is about 300 and something kilometers wide. And this gives them a, a 540,000 square miles worth of territory. It is impossible for 18 kilometers worth of field to devour 540,000 square kilometers worth of ocean stock. The main problem that's behind that, uh, why the actual ocean stocks are collapsing, is because of overfishing and global warming. If we look at the, the hake, the hake species breed in the shallow waters. Now because of the uh, climate change and the global warming, the, the shallow waters heat up very radically. And that causes algae blooms, which reduces the oxygen content in the water. So then the fish move in from the shallow waters into deeper waters. And, and when they move into the deeper water, they immediately preyed upon by the adult hake. Instead of the little hatchlings all swimming around nice and safe in the shallows, they move into the deep water and the adult hake are taking them out. And that, that is fact. And, and the Namibian government refused to accept that. Then if we look at uh, the Namibian fisheries minister, he's a chap by the name of Bernadie Shaw. He uh, regularly ignores uh, the advice of his government scientists and he issues quotas that are far in excess of what are recommended by his scientists. Uh, if, if we look at an example for the, uh, the monkfish, the government scientists recommended a quota of 10,000 tons and he issued a quota of 14,000 tons. Now that is 40% that is higher than what the, what the scientists are recommending as sustainable levels. So that's another aspect to look at. And then also in terms of protecting fish stocks, Namibia doesn't have much of a navy, so to speak of. They, you know, it's a third world country. And uh, monitoring and compliance vessels are, are lacking. And so you've got a, a rampant fleet of international trawlers that are just raping the ecosystem. It's, it's a tragic situation. You ask why, why they slaughtered. Um, they, they slaughter them predominantly for their fur pelts. That's 80,000 nursing cubs who are still on the teeth. They are slaughtered um, by means of a, of a, a club, a basic wooden club. Their, their, their fur pelts are sold for approximately seven United States dollars. And then a further 6,000 bulls are shot. Uh, they are shot in the place at point blank range so that their penises can be shipped to the east where they are made into ineffective sex punish. The, the Pups are clubbed because they're not shot, they're clubbed because uh, a bullet costs money 
uh, and also uh, a bullet damages the pelt, so it reduces the value. And then the adult bulls, they are shot in the face because their skulls are more developed than the, than the, the pups, so uh, beating them is, is virtually impossible. Uh, so yeah, they, they, they end up getting shot. And what do these communities think of the slaughter? Do they support the slaughter? Um, I would say the large majority of Namibians do support the slaughter because the Namibian government is feeding them whitewash about how all the seals eat the fish. And, you know, Namibia is dependent on f income from the fishing industry, blah, 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 same old rhetoric. And so we have to kill the seals so that there's more fish. So, you know, obviously somebody who doesn't really know what how ecosystems work and the balance of it, et cetera, et cetera, will just blindly accept what the government tells them to. And then we have to look at the indigent communities, the communities who are actually involved in the slaughter, because let's face it, the concessionaries, those are the ones who hold the, the rights to the, to the slaughter. They're not going to get their hands dirty. So they get these desperate people, hungry people, untrained, poor, uneducated uh, people from, from the poor communities to do the dirty work for them. Now, yet we all focus on the animal welfare and the animal rights issue. Um, in terms of the uh, Namibian slaughter. But what we've also got to realize is that we might want to feel angry at these people who club these animals to death. But in a certain sense, I would say that they are as much victims as those animals because they are also being used. Their, their needs are not seen to. I mean, they get paid a laughable amount of money. It's like way below the bread line. But because they're desperate, they will do it. Now, what is the impact on you know the, the home life of these people? I can't think that you go to work, beat baby animals to death, you're exposed to suffering, um, there's no QHSE measures, there's, you know, there's zoonotic diseases, nobody's even looking into that, nobody's looking at the, the, the social, as well, the psychological aspect of it, and I can only think that if a study is being done, that you'll find, number one, that the people who are beating these animals to death will probably say, listen, I don't want to, but I don't have a choice. I don't enjoy doing this. I can't think that anybody would say, oh, you know what? I love going to work in the mornings, picking up a club and bludgeoning an animal to death while it screams and, you know, bleeds and convulses. So I, I would, if I have to hazard a guess, I would say that there's probably a high instance of alcoholism or substance abuse as well as domestic violence within the communities that are participating in, in this harvest. Sea Shepherd claims that the whole um, slaughter is illegal. Why is it illegal? And so, and if it is illegal, why does it then take place? In 2011, we actually went up to Namibia and discussed it with the government. It was myself, uh, the International uh, Fund for Animal Welfare, uh, Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, a whole bunch of us. We went up there and we actually challenged the government according to their laws and regulations. Um, because one of the, 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 the Animal Protection Act of Namibia is very clear when it states that it's illegal to, to beat an animal to death. And when we raised this issue with the government, they turned around and they said a seal is not classified as an animal according to the semantics of the law. And uh, according to the semantics of the law, it's a wild animal. Uh, and it's not under the control of anybody. So that's the, the, the dictionary definition doesn't match up to what the legal definition is, and, and that's how the government circumvent this, this situation. The, the, the rest of the developed world will all turn around and say it's illegal. We, I mean, we even had the, the South African NSPCA with us when, when we went to the Ombudsman's meeting in 2011. The chap from the NSPCA, he was adamant. He said, no, he understands the South African law, which is based, the, the Namibian law and the South African law are the same law, because South Africa used to be a, a, a colonial country that was governing uh, Namibia. And um, he's, he's been trained in the legal situation, and he said, no, the, the law is definitely quite clear where it says an animal is not allowed to be beaten to death. Seals are not animals. And this is from someone who has a law degree and is basically one of the highest authorities in the country. So now it makes you think, what is happening down there? Is Namibia run by a bunch of bananas because how can you declare that a seal is not an animal you go to any preschool you show any preschooler a photo of a seal and ask them what it is they will immediately know it's an animal yet the highest authority in Namibia doesn't recognize a seal as an animal and that says it all yeah it makes you despair you think what hope is there what hope is there if we can't even have 
the subject in question recognised for what it is. It's it would be laughable if it wasn't so tragic. Exactly. Exactly. Join us for the launch of Green Left Radio, a new wing of the People's Media on 3CR. Featuring a massive lineup of granical beats and rhythms from Ezekiel Ox, Davinia Providentia, New Dub City released the dub's DJ set, Ray Pereira and Kanchana Karnaratna on Afro Lankan drumming system, and Pressure Drop. Friday, August 21st at 7pm at the Kindred Studios, 212A Whitehall Street, Yarraville. Full bar and Sri Lankan feast available from 7pm. $15 full and $10 concession. Proceeds go to 3CR and Greenleaf Weekly. And don't forget, you can catch Greenleaf Radio Fridays from 8 to 8.30 a.m. on 3CR. You're tuned to 3CR Community Radio and the show is Freedom of Species. We've been hearing from activists in South Africa campaigning against the annual seal slaughter in Namibia. Pat Dickens is telling us about the seals ranked listing within the Convention of International Trade in Endangered Species, commonly known as CITES. So what impact is the Namibian seal slaughter having on the population of that Cape Fur seal community? Everybody says, yeah, but look how many seals there are at Cape Cross. There's thousands. Yes, but how many seals are there on Robben Island? Not one. And Robben Island is named after seals. How many seals on Possession Island? Not one. How many seals are named? You know, all the off of the of the 48 offshore islands, 23 of them have been wiped out. There's not a single animal living on those on those islands anymore. Species is listed on Appendix Two of CITES, and with good reason. Uh, we actually want to up- upgrade it to a CITES One listing because they've lost 95% of the of their preferred habitat. What do you know about Hatem Yuvuts? Because I understand he's an, a Turkish Australian. He's got um, dual yep. citizenship. Yep. Um, we know that he earns something like 60% of the fur market in the world. He's got business dealings uh, in Russia. Um, how do you get someone who makes millions and millions and millions of those who cannot speak back or fight back? How do you how do you change someone's mind to say, listen, this is wrong because he stands to lose money? And Australia, I don't think, can hold Hatem responsible because even though he's an Australian citizen, it's one individual. Um, so, you know, the, the government can't really dictate how, how its own citizens conduct their business if, if it's within the parameters of the law. It's true that the Australian government can't dictate how he runs his business if it's within the law, but they could act upon the convention, the CITES convention, as the European Union has done and has stopped the importation of fur products. So but that's still not going to affect his bottom line because the products aren't coming into Australia. They are going to places like China and Russia and Turkey and all the other countries that don't have that agreement that say, listen, we're banning all the imports and exports of seal products. So even if the Namibian government, oh, if the Australian government goes, you know, we want to act within the convention, blah, 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 it's still not going to affect Hatem because the product's not going uh, imported into Australia if Australia has that rule that there's a ban on seal products. I understand that nearly all countries in the world have signed the convention, but is the seal product ratification, is that only by a certain few countries? That's correct. The EU has signed a ban on on the import and export of seal products. But, you know, the countries like Turkey and Russia and China, um, where Hatem does most of his business, they, they didn't sign that ratification, so it wouldn't apply to them. Right. Okay. The, the tragedy about Hakim Yavuz is he's the honorary diplomat of Namibia to Turkey. His head office is in Sydney. Is that is that right? That's correct. Yeah, he's got he's got offices in Tur- in Turkey as well, in Istanbul as well as in Sydney. It, it seems that he's really yeah. hell bent on on the seal slaughter. I read recently that he's received half a million messages imploring him to cease, and it's motivated him all the more to keep going. He, he thinks it's a joke, you know, he, he, he says, well, you know, if it's not going to be me, it's going to be somebody else. And um, he's very arrogant, he, he, he brags about it, he, you know, he's like, oh, I'm, I'm the king of the cull. That's the self-title that he's given himself, king of the cull. 
How, how despicable can you, can you be? Yeah, I understand he also was instrumental in establishing the kangaroo skin tanning industry. I wouldn't know about that, but it wouldn't surprise me because the more species he can get hold of, the more he, he likes them because if the species is listed on scientist 2, then obviously the value of the pelt he can sell it for more. If you look at the economics of it, it's absolutely disgusting. It takes between six to eight seal skins to make a single fur coat. Now, he's paying $7 for the skin, and then he's selling that, that fur coat for $30,000 Australian dollars. The money doesn't go to the uh, impoverished Namibians. The money goes directly to Yavuz so that he can live the high life of a millionaire, skipping between Turkey and uh, between Istanbul and, and, and Australia, having the, the best of times. The, the workers in Namibia are only paid uh, the equivalent of eight American dollars per day. They get about 50, 50 Namibian dollars every day for, for their work. It hardly manages to cover their, their, their accommodation. They live in tin shacks out in the, in the, in the desert, uh, makeshift shacks, shanty towns. Uh, drug and alcohol abuse is rife. Domestic abuse is common. Uh, they are kept in a position of squalor as cheap labor. So, you know, if, if we go in there and we tell them, listen, guys, this is the alternative, uh, we're going to look at, at, at ecotourism, then we are viewed as foreigners who are trying to steal their jobs because that's what they're told. And they know that they, for four months of the year, they're going to get 50 bucks a day. The slaughter takes place in a, a designated seal reserve before the tourists arrive each day. I'm wondering, are the tourists typically aware of what's just taken place? And This is the horror of it. You see, the, the colony is open to public tourism from 10 o'clock in the morning until 5 o'clock in the evening. Now, what happens is from daybreak, uh, which is about half past five in the morning, the cubbers will arrive at the beach and they'll slaughter as many as they can in the morning. They've got until nine o'clock to slaughter. So they'll club up to about 300 on average per day. Um, and from nine o'clock to 10 o'clock, they rake the beaches over of any blood. And then what happens is if any blood is overlooked and uh, is mentioned by a tourist, excuse me, now what, what is this blood on the beach for? Then the, then the park board officials have been instructed to say that it's uh, predation from hyenas and jackals from the night before. Wow. So they cover it up. Can you talk about the economics of ecotourism versus the economics of the seal fur industry? Uh, several organisations have come together and they've commissioned an independent report uh, by an Australian firm, surprisingly enough, uh, to, to research the economics of seal hunting versus ecotourism and the report came back clearly stating that ecotourism will generate 300% more revenue and will create a wealth of jobs on a permanent basis uh, in a country that's desperate for employment. So this is another one of the, the things that we've raised issue with the government, you know, we've handed this proposal, this submission to them and, and they've ignored it completely, which I, I can't understand. If you're going to make 300% more money and you're going to give a wealth of opportunities to your, to your people, why are you not investigating this on a serious basis? And, and the government is just blandly just carrying on, let's kill the fields, let's kill the fields. I think a lot of it has got to do with uh, corruption within the fisheries. So what does the Secretariat of, the, of CITES make of this? Has there been discussion with the Secretariat? We've spoken to John Scanlon, uh, well, we haven't spoken to him, we've emailed him uh, numerous times and he keeps saying yeah, it will be brought up at the next CITES meeting and the next CITES meeting and nothing ever gets done. I think CITES is a lot, it's good on paper but unfortunately when it comes down to the nitty gritty, unfortunately it, it falls way short of what it's supposed to achieve. Should we be lobbying the Secretariat? Listen, anything at this point helps. I mean I can't say to you, listen, no, it's not going to work, blah, blah, blah. Anything will help, even if it's just signing a petition or writing to your local Namibian embassy saying, listen, please stop this, even if it's just sending a fax or picking up a phone. Anything will help um, because you just never know. You never know until you try. Because it sounds like with the amount of corruption that's going on and the nepotism and the potential kickbacks that are going on, that appealing to the Namibian government sounds like it's falling on deaf ears. Appealing to... Appealing to the lead furrier, Hatam Yuvuts, that seems to be falling very much on deaf ears because he seems to take delight in being called the king of the cull and he seems to be somewhat motivated by people's despair 
So that seems to be pointless. So I'm wondering, who do we appeal to? Sh should we be appealing possibly to our own countries to, uh, you know, put some boycott on Nam Namibia tourism? Or what should we be doing that's the most effective thing to do? Talk about it. Uh, spread the word. You know, if what I always say, I give a lot of speeches and stuff to schools and clubs and so on. I always say, the more people know, the more they are empowered. And the more they are empowered, the more they can do. Um, Hatim, you know, as you say, he's he's marching to the beat of, of his own drum. Um, Namibian government, again, corruption. But if, you know, this past week, I learned something very, very valuable. And I've been in, in the animal rights arena for the last 10 years, is that never, ever say die because... I, I don't know if you know about the Gadimai festival in Nepal. It's yes. a religious festival that's been happening for hundreds of years where, you know, thousands upon thousands of animals are had to death just to appease some invisible goddess. No respect, to, no disrespect to any Hindus, of course. Um, but, you know, this is, this is hundreds of years of tradition of religious indoctrination and this is this is a belief system a, a strong belief system that they have and i saw this with my own eyes and you know thanks to continuous efforts um continuous pressure continuous dialogue um continuous awareness the garimai festival has now banned animal sacrifice indefinitely so it's it's just you, you know the Change doesn't happen overnight. We're not always lucky to say, you know, from one moment to the next, things are going to change. To fight for change, take change takes years and years. Apartheid, for instance, is is a case in point. As you, you know, coming from South Africa, I grew up in apartheid South Africa, and you know, it was a struggle. And we, you know, people also, the Afrikaners and a lot of other people, say to foreigners, "Listen, stay out of our country, stay out of our business, stay out of our foreign policy. You've got nothing to do with this." And yet. You know, we kept on pushing, kept on pushing, kept on asking for help. The international community rallied together. And after years and years of oppression, we are now a free and democratic country. So a change doesn't necessarily happen overnight. We've got to keep the pressure up. We've got to keep the dialogue open. We've got to do absolutely everything in our power. Um, read up on the issue, uh, get to know the facts, because as I said, the more you know, the more you are empowered, and the more you are empowered, the more you can do. And, uh, you know, even if it's just simply taking, picking up the, the receiver of the phone and for 30 seconds telling whoever is on the other side of the, uh, of the phone what is happening, that, that will have a ripple effect. And this is how we get people to rally together and to help apply pressure. Um, the best way, of course, is to, to hit them where they hurt the most and that's the money in Afrikaans we've got a saying that goes which means if you don't want to hear you must feel so we've been talking and we've been talking we've been pleading we've been rational we've been logical we've been reasonable and they're not listening so the next logical step will be if you don't want to listen if you don't want to hear you've got to feel so let's make you feel it in your pocket because that's obviously the motiva motivating factor over here is the money so if we take away the money, if we threaten them with the money, then maybe we'll get their attention. So, you know, you can go ahead and say, let's boycott Namibia and let's boycott any travel to Namibia. Let's boycott Vintuk beer, you know, all Namibian products, etc., etc. But the problem with the boycott is once you have achieved your goal and that boycott took momentum, it's very, very difficult to reverse the effects. And it takes a long time to reverse the effects. So a boycott should only be done as a very very last resort and I'm not always in favor of that because as I say long after you've achieved your goal the effects of the boycott is still is still still felt and um, that is not what we want to achieve we don't want to punish a country after the fact for complying and being compassionate and actually waking up now as an aside I understand that there's African hunting companies that are offering um, land-based seal trophy hunting expeditions which just I beg his belief, but I, I can't imagine that hunting a seal, like a bull seal on land with a crossbow, present much of a challenge. Yeah, you know, there's a, is a huge outrage that uh, you must have seen it now. All across all social media channels, it's on every newspaper. Cecil the lion that was shot in, in Rhodesia. The yes, yes, yes. Uh, now, there's a huge media outrage about one lion, there's a minimal outrage about 250 pilot whales, and there's no outrage about the 86,000 seals. So I'm not, I'm not trying to take the limelight away from Cecil the Lion, 
but I am saying, you know, highlight the probability of, you know, one lion is a trophy hunt of $55,000 is paid for that lion. But now when you go and look at a seal, it's a sleeping animal. It doesn't, you know, it's lying there wallowing in the sun, enjoying itself. It's not a danger to anybody. And, and the, the video footage of this ignoramus, he goes and shoots it with a crossbow six times. It's not a hunt. It's, not, it's just nothing but a, a, a verbose cruelty. Yeah defies belief that anyone could call that hunting. Yeah, no, that's, not, that's not a hunt. Yeah, it's target Vile practice. Tar- yeah, and it's not even target practice because it's a huge fat animal that is lying there. You know, if you want to target practice, at least shoot a beer bottle on the other side of the, ro- on the, other side of the road. Yeah. So then you can develop a bit of skill. But when you're shooting at a barn door, come on. <laughs> it's, it's right, it's a barn door, you're quite right. Have you heard of the proposed seal cull here in Australia? I have. What's your take on that? Stop eating the damn fish. That's my take on it. These animals are not responsible for the fact that you have environmental problems. Nature has a way of balancing itself out until we put our finger in the pie. If there is an issue with killing seals because they eat too much fish, it's not their fault. It's your fault. Stop the overfishing. Stop trying to plunder our oceans for a bit of profit. Our fishing industry actually stabilized. Our fishing population stabilized after South Africa um, abolished the coal or, or the harvesting of these animals. So, you know, harvesting these seals for whatever reason you may think you have is not the answer. Uh, same with this, the, you know, you guys are battling with a shark issue. The ocean is a shark's home. So where do these animals go? The seals, again, what do you expect them to eat? Cake and carrots. They don't. They eat fish. Same with the sharks. You go into the ocean, you take that risk walking into someone else's home. So if you get nibbled, if you get bitten, then you accept the responsibility for that. But don't blame the animals or punish the animals for doing what comes naturally. Killing your seals in Australia is not going to be the answer. You are going to end up with more problems than you can handle or what you started with. Seals have lived in harmony with, with the oceans for the, for the last four million years. They've never been a problem. The problem started in the late 1940s when industrialized uh, trawlers came available and we've raped the ocean. We are to blame. The seals are not to blame. They are turning to pelicans and penguins for a reason. They don't eat the penguins. They eat the stomach contents of the penguins because they are short of fish. So when the seals are attacking the fishing nets, they are looking for an easy meal. It's the the, the fishermen's fault. They they are a a reckless and destructive industry. If you go and look at at any um, online site, there are millions of online sites talking the amount of of marine pollution and debris and wildlife by the thousands that are dying because of fishing nets. Millions of animals, sharks, dugongs, dolphins, whales, uh, are, are, are getting ensnared and drowning in, in, in fishing here. Uh, and and to, go, to go and scapegoat a seal because somebody wants to eat a ton of tuna is malicious and, and, and just plain stupid. I urge the Australian um, community to please you know, go on to, on to change.org. There's a petition uh, to kill the Aussie Parliament to stop the Aussie cull. Uh, you know, find that and, and let's fix Give these animals a break. A great lord came walking through the forest one morning with a weapon in his hand. Our interviewee Nikki suggested that last song. It's a track by Krista Berg called The Tower. Krista Berg, animal advocate. Who knew? Now, I touched upon this next issue with both Nikki and Pat, the previous interviewees. That is the proposed seal cull in South Australia's Coorong District. Peter Shaughnessy is an honorary research associate at the South Australian Museum and is formerly of CSIRO Wildlife and Ecology in Canberra. He's been studying seals for many years. Do you think they really are causing such a disturbance to the, the local fishing industry, as it's been claimed? Oh, they certainly do. I mean, using set nets to catch fish is an, an invitation to uh, seals to come help themselves. 
So the form of fishery is really is not compatible with having lots of fur seals. Now the fur seal population has increased a lot in the last 50 years and uh, they've discovered there's a ready source of food in the Coorong. The Coorong's a long narrow waterway so the set nets are pretty easy for the seals to discover and it's uh, just an invitation to seals to go feed. Has the first seal population stabilised? I understand that it was hunted extensively early last century. So has it stabilised now and what's its status? Yes, they were harvested. Sealing in Australia was one of the first industries after the Europeans arrived and quite a lucrative industry for those who were managing it. And in South Australia it began soon after Matthew Flinders reported seals. Um, So in about 1805 and uh, the sealers were operating out of Kangaroo Island and various other places. They, we know they took at least 100,000 seals in South Australia, and most of those would have been fur seals. So it's an underestimate. That's 100,000 animals that were taken in about 20 years. So when settlement happened in South Australia in 1836, there were very, very few seals around. That would have been about the bottom of the population size. And it's taken a long while for them to recover, but we've been uh, recording numbers for 27 years on Kangaroo Island, and in that time, overall, they've increased by... Sorry, they've increased at 10% per annum. Now, have they reached the plateau? Well, they have on the Neptune Islands, which are between Kangaroo Island and Port Lincoln, and that used to account for about half the population in South Australia. That's gone down a bit. Kangaroo Island, where we're still monitoring them, uh, they're still increasing. Now, people say that animals are out of control. Well, that's nonsense because their numbers are limited by the space available on shore to breed. What are the alternatives to the cull that's been proposed? And, and do those alternatives have their own inherent risks? OK, the alternative being looked at, well, there are a couple. Um, one is using a form of seal deterrent, such as uh, seal crackers, explosives that go off underwater and frighten the wits out of seals. I'm not sure how well they're going to work at a, a net that's set that's left in the water for several hours because you can't be throwing crackers at the seals over the whole length of the net for several hours. And anyway, that's time-consuming for the fishermen, so I kind of wonder how well that'll work. Another alternative that's being suggested is uh, acoustic harassment devices known by the acronym of AHD, and they emit a very loud sound at about 180 decibels, and they're battery-operated. They've tried them at uh, aquaculture pens, and with, with mixed results, limited success. So that's one possibility. And the other thing that's being looked into, which I think has got more promise, is uh, other methods of catching the fish. So there are there's a f- uh, fishing gear experts who are working with the industry to try other methods, so I've been told. Right. That sounds good, that the, the, the fishing industry needs to make perhaps change on their side, not necessarily make the change on the seal side. Well, that's the way I see it. Um, I, I really don't think that... To, I mean, we have... A large number of seals, which is getting bigger, and to try to to try to stop that is a bit like King Canute trying to push the tide back. It's just not going to work. It seems that um, one of the common names of the species, that is the New Zealand fur seal, hasn't helped its cause. Um, yes, I got fed up with people saying that it, uh, its name, the New Zealand fur seal, indicates that it came from New Zealand and it's feral and it should be removed. Um, It's only been known as the New Zealand fur seal since 1968 when an English taxonomist came out to South Australia or to Southern Australia to sort out the taxonomy of fur seals in Australia and New Zealand because at that stage, when I was a student studying this very problem, it wasn't clear whether there was one or two or three species in Australia and New Zealand. And three had been named, but in fact there were only two. And we just happened to have the same seal as they have in New Zealand so she applied the name New Zealand fur seal so that name's only been around for less than 50 years 
Uh, before that, we didn't really know what first seal we had. Does it have a more appropriate common name? Well, I believe it does. Um, my colleague Simon Goldsworthy and I, we've renamed it the long nose fur seal because it does have quite a distinctive long pointy nose. And uh, I chose that name in the hope that when people take photographs of these animals and send them to me to, uh, can you please identify this, they'll take a photograph of the nose because then with that I can often identify them. But they just photograph the body. It's very difficult to separate them from the fur seal from Bass Strait, which is called the Australian fur seal. And that, of course, is part of the naming problem because we had an Australian fur seal and a New Zealand fur seal. To some people, obviously, the New Zealand one was a feral. So we're hoping this new name, long-nosed fur seal, will catch on. The state government's quite keen on it and uh, it's getting some traction. Okay. Is it um, is this seal species the same species that's being currently targeted in Namibia? No. Okay. No, that's called the uh, well. That too goes by several names. It's either the South African fur seal or the Cape fur seal, and it happens to be the same species as they have in Bass Strait. Oh, okay. Of which we have a few in South Australia and an increasing number. Seals play a strong part in ecotourism in South Australia? On Kangaroo Island, there is an active seal tourism at Seal Bay, where the Australian sea lions breed, and there are about 100,000 visitors per annum go to Seal Bay. Uh, Kangaroo Island is considered one of the tourist destinations in South Australia, and nearly a very high proportion of the people who go to Kangaroo Island go to Seal Bay. And if there was seal culling in South Australia, I think that would have a very bad effect on seal-oriented tourism. On not only Kangaroo Island, there's also some tourist operators who swim with seals on Air Peninsula, and I'm pretty sure they'd be affected too. Tell me about the birds in the Coorong. Yeah. Well, the fishermen are saying that uh, there are pelicans especially are being attacked by seals. And I was in the Coorong just a couple of days ago and we did see quite a lot of dead pelicans, including one that had only just had its uh, stomach bitten out. And I suspect what's happening is that the, the pelicans are feeding at the fishermen's nets because they too feed underwater and uh, they can find a good feed when it's available. So the seals and the pelicans are feeding at the fishermen's nets. This is the way I see it. And the seals have learnt that another way to get a good feed is to take the stomach out of a pelican that's got a stomach full of fish. That's very smart. Yeah. So the root cause of this whole problem to me is the, uh, is the fishing nets. Now, the other aspect of this is that the local Indigenous people, the Naranjeri, are saying that the seals were never in the Kurong originally. And um, their, their spokesman cites his grandparents and great-uncles. Now, that doesn't go far far enough back. The time of his grandparents, which would have been, uh, say, late 1800s, there were very few seals around. They'd been almost eliminated. They hadn't recovered then. So you really need to go back to the uh, 1700s to know what was going on. And, of course, there's no written records back then. And I believe seals were always in the Coorong and up the River Murray, and there are records of them up there. Probably not in very big numbers. Um, now the numbers in the Coorong are much bigger because than they were even in the 1700s because there's already a supply of food, and it's called fishermen's nets. That's what's attracting them in the, into the Coorong, and that's the, the root of all the problem, those fishing nets that attract the seals. Is part of the problem overfishing? Oh, no. No, no, no. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. You're tuned to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio, and we're talking about the proposed seal cull in South Australia. 
We've just heard from Peter Shaughnessy of the South Australian Museum. I also recently spoke by Skype with Phil Cornelius, who's the chairman of Animal Liberation South Australia. Well, it seems that uh, there's a, uh, um, an understanding that there's an excess of, of seals around at the moment. And the South Australian Liberal MP, Adrian Pederick, claiming, with claiming the backing of his colleagues, proposes to tackle this problem by shooting seals humanely. And I can't see how shooting and humane can be in the same sentence. Uh, Minister Adrian Pederick cites the kangaroo meat industry and says seal meat could be processed as well. Obviously, for profit reasons, the seal and seal meat and seal skin industries would be keen to promote the belief of an excess of seal numbers. The problem with seal meat is the degree of heavy metal contamination that's in all big fish. The answer to every abundance of animal life that appears to interfere with human activity seems to be hold them. Strangely, it's human activity that causes the problem to start with. As I understand, the seals are native to our waters and therefore have every right to be there. It would seem logical that these seals, which would normally feed out to sea in the small pelagic zone, are not finding enough fish to live on. Commercial and recreational fishing have had an adverse effect, and now, of course, there is the super trawler adding to the scarcity of fish. An apparent increase in numbers may be misleading, because more seals are searching in new areas for food, even up the Murray River as far as Murray Bridge. There are far fewer sharks around, so the reduction in predators could mean an increase in seal numbers as well. Shark diving tour operators in the Port Lincoln area are complaining about the lack of sharks. They have disappeared from their usual locations. Shark fin fishing and commercial fishing are affecting populations of these predators worldwide. Uh, so on July 22nd, Environment Labor Minister Ian Hunter announced $100,000 funding for a research program as, as pressure continues to mount for the, from the fishing industry. Evidence from overseas has shown culling to be ineffective. Removing one seal means that another will simply move in to take advantage of the available food. So the SA government intended to trial non-lethal deterrence. Minister Ian Hunter said... It's important that we help fishers find a way to coexist with long-nosed fur seals, which are a natural part of our marine environment. Minister Hunter acknowledges that they are a natural part of our marine environment. It seems to me that people who depend on decisions by the government need a clear indication of intent so they can plan their futures. If the Kurong area was made a marine park, for instance, Fishermen could make definite plans for their future directions. Deterrents such as small underwater crackers, known as seal scarers, could be a new tool to assist fishers to manage seal impacts. These are the devices the government will test. Use of these acoustic deterrent devices can be very challenging and require many conditions to be satisfied for them to be effective. Use as a barrier in rivers They've been effective in some places in the world, whereas in open waters, the sound can carry for up to 30 kilometres and may detrimentally affect the seals, whales, porpoises and dolphins. Permanent and temporary hearing loss to varying degrees is one of the concerns in this case. The beaching of whales is another aspect of low-frequency sound waves used by ADD systems. Because detection of quiet signals is biologically important, the effect of even a small loss of hearing could be a serious problem for seals, dolphins, sea lions and whales. A small degree of hearing damage can also degrade frequency discrimination and thereby reducing the ability to navigate and classify sounds. With degraded hearing, seals will become immune to the effects of scaring devices as well. Non-lethal measures are a deterrent and with consequences. But the more effective approach for long-term ocean health is to allow recovery of the ecology by leaving all the creatures in the sea alone. Scientists and world-famous oceanographer Dr Sylvia Earle warns that the oceans are not too big to fail. But she also says that just maybe 
we are growing wise enough to save them. With 90% of the Earth's big fish stock gone, it's time to stop the plunder of our seas. The oceans dominate the way the world works and makes our lives possible. So at the end of the, end of the day, we should let nature recover and leave the fish in the sea. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. I've, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, and really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. I want to do a quick shout-out for the annual Trivia Night being held as a fundraiser for the Maniki Niko Cat Rescue. It's on next Saturday, August the 15th, at the North Baldwin Bowls Club in Melbourne. Details are on its Facebook page, and I'll also share it on our Facebook page. I'll also post a link to the Namibian Seal Cull Petition there as well. That's it for this week. Big thanks to Pat Dickens, Nikki Berta, Peter Shaughnessy and Phil Cornelius. Next week, Emma will be talking with renowned filmmaker Jean Yi about a film he collaborated on with the organisation Brighter Green. The film's called What's for Dinner and it focuses on the growing meat consumption in China. In the meantime, you can follow Freedom of Species on Facebook and Twitter and I'm leaving you with a song again suggested by our interviewee, Nikki. It's called Raise Your Glass by Pink, which I didn't really get the relevance of until I saw its film clip on YouTube. Stay tuned for In Psychedelia and see you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.